Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. <laughs> Happy September. That was a September. weird creepy blow, I'm sorry. Happy September. It is nice to be recording with you on our regular episode one day later than we usually record because I was having a rough day. It's all good. It's been we a tough week that. so far. Yeah, it's already felt like a long week for me. But when this comes out, everyone, I hope, is celebrating the long weekend that we have. See, I always forget that holidays exist. I'm I sorry. Even... That's such a freelance yeah. thing. I guess it is. I guess it is. I'm, like, working on league stuff on Monday, so, like, I'm really no better here. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not taking the holiday I'm supposed to be taking, but it's fine. Yeah. Lots of good stuff happening. We do. You're right. We do have a lot of good stuff happening and much to prepare for. And this week, we are announcing that... You should have already gotten the email if you're listening to this when this comes out, if you're on our mailing list. But if not, if you're just a podcast listener, our first link this week is very exciting. We have a new workshop coming up with a new teacher, Caleb Dean, who is very awesome. He he was recommended to us by Daniel, and he teaches type design, like experiments with stuff on Twitch. And that was how we found him. He's like a professional educator and graphic designer and and has his own type foundry. And he's talking about spacing and rhythm, which is just one of those things that like we're getting to a point in the workshops where we have worked on drawing letters. We've worked on like assembling them into a font. And now we're getting into some of the more difficult nitty gritty stuff of like, how the heck do you get the spacing right in a font? Caleb so is- I'm very excited about that. Yeah, he's an expert on this kind of stuff. He created this tool called the Spacing Calculator, which he was showing off at Type Weekend last year. You can find that video online. But uh, he will teach you how to use this tool. He calls it a cheat sheet to make sure you have bulletproof spacing within your typefaces. But also, he talks about a lot of the principles of spacing and rhythm. So we were talking about this earlier. I think this class is great for people interested in type design, but also great for designers that are typesetting things that need to look great and perfect. We think about a logo design. At some point, a logo design is less like typesetting type and more like creating kind of this perfect letter form rhythm that will be used for a very long time. So that's not something that you want to be making mistakes on. That's something that takes a lot of craft and care. And the spacing and rhythm will help people take your type to the next level. I am already excited to start learning when we have it on September 11th and 12th. <laughs> that is coming up. It should be in uh, one week after the podcast launches, a week and a day. It's on a weekend. We have it mm-hmm. at noon, so that's easiest for a lot of time zones, noon Eastern time. But also, if that doesn't work for you, we offer anyone that signs up for the course a recording. So they'll get all the good stuff just sent to them, uh, and they can watch it when it's convenient. Yeah, that's going to be really great. The link is in the newsletter, and you can go grab a ticket whether you're going to be there or not so that, you know, you can get the recording either way. Exciting. Very cool. Very excited. School's back, everyone. We're starting with (laughs) some exciting stuff. Yep, yep. I love it. All right. All right, our next link, my friend. I didn't find this one. This one's new to me. I love this link. I've actually... Okay, I'll give an overview of what it is and give some 
of my musings. This is from Lettermatic. I think, I don't know if they consider themselves a foundry. I believe they do. It's a group of type designers that are working on some really cool work. I've been seeing them a lot lately because they post a lot of case studies for their custom typefaces for brands, which is really interesting. If that's something that interests you and you're curious about like why brands decide to go with custom type and what that process is like, I think they outline it really well. And they outline it very well, especially in this article we have by them called Custom Fonts for Root Insurance, a lettermatic case study made to perform. And so they start from the beginning. What was the brief for when they were asked to create a custom type family? Something I really love about this is that the very beginning gives you basic information about who did the design. It was designed by Riley Cran. How many fonts are in it? If there's a family, how many fonts are in that? There's 56 actually, which is nuts. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, they give credit to language support, people that helped with that, the number of widths, and the classifications. So that's great. I also love the way this article is typeset. I very rarely see Mm. two-column articles that are enjoyable to read on the web. So I do want to point that out. And as someone that is currently working with a brand and a type designer on custom type, I think that this is a really interesting great just deep dive into what that process is like what things are being considered there's really great visuals with markups that kind of let you see what people were thinking throughout the process and i think it's really interesting it's for an insurance company but there's so much variety in the type families they create for them they create a serif and a sans and they have a variety of weights so like heavy it almost looks goofy but you could see them really having their own distinct look to it and as someone a company like an insurance company, they have their type on a lot of places and it's a really big part of their brand identity. So they even talk about how they've seen the type already on vehicle wraps, social media posts, clothing stickers, statistical driving reports. Uh, So super Mm. interesting to see kind of an unexpected client for a very large typographic undertaking. That was very well put. I think it's interesting because that conversation has come up so much of custom typefaces for companies. So many times you're like, do they really need that? And a lot of our answers so far has been like licensing. It's like cheaper to mm-hmm. buy a custom font from a designer than it is to license forever on all the platforms you need. And this is also really interesting because it's like, obviously, I'm sure that weighs into their decision making, but it was a lot more than that. And this is really cool to see that in depth. Yeah, and and super interesting. They talk about how a lot of custom type these days, or a lot of clients in general, are really, they want to follow the trend of the geometric sans serif, which is friendly and approachable. That's how it's often described. But they really got the opportunity to not be like everyone else. And that kind of led them to thinking about a humanistic sans serif, which isn't necessarily at the top of its trend right now, but they really did create a beautiful typeface with their sans serif. And, you know, so this insurance company is going to have this type on all their applications on a mobile app, which is really important to the company in general. And so how do they optimize type for that? They talk about the process of looking at the the minute details and getting actually inspired from airport signage. I read recently that out of all the airports in the world that have Latin type, most of them use like one of like maybe five fonts, which is really interesting. And they almost always use a humanist sans serif because the way those letters are designed, they have really open counters and are very legible from far away. 
And so mm. they actually kind of use that logic to think of, let's look at the other extreme with a really small type and how we can optimize it for that. And I just think that's really fascinating. They go into that in, in the article as well. It's worth reading about. This is such a good find, man. Right? I, I love the literal graphic design that is in this too. This is so perfect. Very inspiring. It's not only, yeah, it's not only wonderfully typeset with great examples, but the visuals are really well done. And there's just like very interesting, subtle branding throughout that just feels so perfect. Absolutely. Very impressive. Absolutely. Ugh, great amazing. Find. Our next find is very fun. I, I'm in love with this. Okay. It is titled Seven Overused <laughs> Logo Letter Forms to Let Go Of. And it's just this hilarious overview. I already um, love the alliteration. Yeah. And first of all, there's great puns on every top, on every title for this. And they talk about things that we see in logos, little tricks that designers use, as we call them, to make a logo feel distinct. And they're just so, they're so great. Like they talk about the topsy tur V, which is like the capital letter V and the capital letter A kind of being exact rotation of itself and how that's seen in a lot of logos. They talk about an capital letter E that's just made with three vertical lines. So you, if you think of the Tesla logo, it's like a very easy, rememberable logo to think about. They talk about how sometimes logo designers will take two O's next to each other and connect them either with an infinity loop or ring them together like in the Bloomingdale's logo, which is very classic, but it is funny seeing people take that their own way. And then I love the reference they do about so long division about a logo that where the first letter form has an extension. So if you think about like a Vans logo or Krispy Kreme, they have these long bars that go alongside it, which is very overused. And then it's really interesting because then the designer takes away those long bars on top of it and the logos still hold up. So it's just a funny, it's just really entertaining and worth reading. And if you catch yourself doing <laughs> one of these tricks, be like, do I really need to do this or is it? just something I've seen before. What's interesting too with that last example where he took away that extra top line. I feel like a bunch of these are going to happen. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, there's always that evolution of the logo and then a big PR blog post about how it's related to our history but new and unique and it's literally they mm -hmm. just like slightly change something. This mm -hmm. is a perfect example. Hilarious. Yeah, this was also a fun find. And the writer of this, I believe, is Nick Levesque, who is a designer and creative director. So I appreciate the humor and the insights. All right. The next link we found was funny. This was from Daniel, right? Yes. Good friend Daniel Nisbet. Thank you, Daniel. And it's Marvel character or font. Can you tell the difference? And it's like a very quirky design. And I've only messed with this for two two iterations already and i'm like shoot i already messed up <laughs> like it's really I, it's, it's it's more difficult than you think yeah it's literally they just show you a card with a word like forte and you have to say is that a marvel character or is that a font and oh i got one it's a font next question quicksand oh i know that's a font because that's one that thomas worked on sigmar one see now i'm lost that could literally be either one i have no idea right oh, not a marvel character it's very fun it's cute I, yeah, I do love like Univer showing up. Like that could so be a Marvel character if you don't know anything about Univer the font. So very fun. I thought it was hilarious. I want some entertainment. <laughs> if I'm honest, all the ones that I've gotten right were guesses. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's tough because fonts and 
Marvel characters sound similar. I'm very unfamiliar with the Marvel universe. Like, probably the most unfamiliar person most people know. So it was tough <laughs> for me. I really had to use my font knowledge to carry me through it. I think I got 15 out of 20 right. Oh, my gosh. This is so funny. This is, I just think this is hilarious. Yeah. So yeah, but also the Marvel universe is, like, obscenely wide there's so mm-hmm. many spin-offs of spin-offs and i don't I, I was never really a huge comic book reader when i was a kid i just know a couple so it's just very fun yeah i also i think it's hilarious optima is one of them and optima sounds like a kind of like epic superhero but then like when you see optima the font it's like very subdued and like tries to be like classy <laughs> and classic hilarious so this is just fun and cute whoever made that clever we love it we love it. I'm a big fan. I want to send it to people in my life at Marvel. I think they'll get a big <laughs> kick out of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Micah, you didn't even introduce the Nerd Alert. Oh, earlier. shoot. I totally forgot. That's wow. your job. That's your job. I know. I messed up. I messed up hard. You did. So what's our nerd alert about, Olivia? I was waiting for you to say that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, guys. Our nerd alert this week is about the one. The only atomic design. (laughs) What an introduction. So fun because we were just talking about Marvel characters, and I feel like atomic design could be something in the Marvel vocabulary. Sound fun. It's all about the entertainment and the education. I like I created that tagline for this podcast in my head, and this is the first time saying it out loud. It's excellent, I think, before we move on. All right. Atomic Design. Micah, you mentioned this a few episodes back. We were talking mm-hmm. about design tokens, and then you just started going off on all this knowledge on Atomic Design, and I was like, what? I've never even heard of this. This is such a fun name. How have we not talked True. about this? And that kind of was the impetus for me to do this deep dive into this kind of like much more on the UI, UX side of things in the design world, but like very interesting theory that I think everyone will find fascinating and can apply it to their own practice in some way. Have you used it before? I want to ask that before I even define it. You know, it's tough. I was, I'm, you know this, but everybody else doesn't, that I was like kind of nervous to do this nerd alert because you were like, oh, you know so much. And I was like, no, I think I just, I said everything that I knew in the last one. And so The truth is, like, I haven't read in depth about it. Like, I know what it is. When we talked about design tokens, I could explain examples of what each of the, like, more and more detailed pieces would be of this theory of how to approach designing systems. And I don't, I feel like I use it without knowing in depth like how to use it. Like, I haven't read the entire book. It's just I know of it. And the fact is, in my design chops in the last few years so much of it has been ui or web design related and so much of my programming has been more and more in the programming ethos of making components Mm. that i feel like it's almost naturally happening without everybody knowing that's what they're doing Yeah, so I'll explain what that is, and I think a lot of us actually probably use some type of this methodology in our own design in one way or another without us knowing it, but I think it's like a really interesting concept. So, atomic design. Sorry, guys. I know we've all been waiting to be like, what (laughs) the hell even is this? It is basically a web design methodology or system 
It involves breaking down a website design into its basic components and using and reusing those components to complete the design of a website. And the really fun part about atomic design is that each of these components have just as fun of a name as the title (laughs) of this methodology, which makes me excited about it. They are all kind of used in a hierarchical way, similar to design tokens that we were talking about a few weeks ago. But all these components, they are called atoms, molecules, and organisms, and they all establish different parts of the whole design. I love the fact that this system is named atomic design also because of its similarities to our natural world, its similarities to chemical elements. In the way that like we learn the periodic table and we learn how chemistry has bonds and molecules. I was so bad at chemistry, so I'm not going deep into it. But we're all (laughs) familiar with the very basic building blocks. And so like the natural world, everything can be broken down into a finite system of things you know there's a human being inside a human being there's a head inside a head there's a brain and so on so on till you get to kind of minute tiny things and that system has parallels with our system web design but I also think design as a whole and we can talk about that in general let's define our components that we were talking about at the very lowest level Actually, let's start with the highest level. At the highest level, we have our pages, something that we are all familiar with as a vocabulary word. And the web in general adopted the term pages because they knew people were familiar with pages of a book. So we know what a web page is. That is a concrete stage of atomic design. It's, you know, what users will see and interact with. Very familiar. Take one level down, we have our templates. Um, The templates for the pages might also sound familiar. That's uh, the layout of the structure so the underlying content of the structure what we think about when we think about wireframes if you're familiar with that term now we take it one step deeper going under the skin we got our uh, organisms such a fun way to talk about design things i need to start (laughs) doing this and i don't know how i'm gonna do it but i'm gonna do it so an organism can maybe be a header of of a page so an organism has several components of it you think about a website header has a logo image a navigation list a search form and then underneath that organism in the hierarchy our molecules are very simple groups of ui elements working together as a unit so the organism had had components that work together to make it the molecule also has components take a look at maybe our you know search form molecule that would become a molecule and that molecule is part of a header which is an organism and so in that molecule we have a form label search input button those are all actually our atoms so our atoms are very basic html elements in web design so that's like our form labels our inputs our buttons our colors we think about design tokens at the very basic core level how do we style really simple thing so that's also kind of involved in all of that so all of like the design token just to clarify is like one level deeper than an atom where it's defining what the color is that is used everywhere or the font or something like that like padding Mm -hmm. numbers that kind of exactly so all those things together are working and functioning in harmony to allow a website design to exist. It's interesting to think about designing systems in these ways is that atomic design is not about what the end page will look like and let's get there. It's also not about let's design a bunch of tiny components and just slot them together. Atomic design is so interesting to me because it's not a linear process. It's rather a mental model to help us think about our interfaces 
becoming a cohesive whole and a collection of parts. It's interesting when we think about our website design being, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the idea of the webpage and what we want to accomplish and getting there using components or is it an idea of building all these components and then eventually they get put together into this webpage? We talked about the hierarchy of atoms, molecules, organisms, templates, pages, but you're not designing an atom first and then a molecule and then an organism. You're designing all these things together in tandem so that things really are very consistent throughout your design and work together, also allowing the developer and the designer to establish a more harmonious relationship because developers design things from the bottom up. Uh, sometimes designers think of think like artists, where they think of the idea and try to make it happen and just work towards that. Instead, this is this beautiful interweaving that is a totally new framework for thinking about how you're designing and you're never designing anything in isolation. Everything has a context. So when we design an atom, we're thinking about it in maybe our organism, which is the header. For designing a molecule, we also wanna make sure it works across several templates. So this also makes something like the daunting task of designing a 30,000 page website break down to a little bit easier because a lot of these components, a lot of these atoms, molecules, pages are repeated throughout and it allows this very organized way of thinking. Is oh that what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I honestly just, you like you were on such a roll, I thought you were gonna keep going. I thought something the happened. No, no, that's how I've associated like atomic design in the grand scheme. But I guess I can keep going. I think like atomic <laughs> design is was created for web design. We link to the the book in our newsletter, which is available on a website. But I also think that like the idea of atomic design can be applied to I think about the design I'm doing, which is often working in systems. So when I'm working on a brand identity or I'm working on a packaging design system where maybe it's for packaging for a brand that has 50 packages. There are certain things like illustrations that need to be consistent, that give directions on how to use the food, that may be an atom. And within the illustrations, there's whole direction module. Maybe that's my molecule. And thinking about how these things are moving across 30 different kinds of food, uh, it's important to think about like, how to reuse and use things and how to make sure things can stand up against different conditions. And like another reason atomic design is so great is because it works within our world of flexible systems that allow a web page to be viewed on a tablet, on a phone, on a TV screen. And that's only going to become more complex as we move through things. So having an established component system is so important. Yeah, that, that relates to, you're describing all the different potential screens that it has to be on. But part of the point that is definitely made with this is that also influences how people perceive your brand. So it all has to be tied together. It's not like you can, you know, make a whole system of components and then be like, okay, go use them. Making the components is part of both the visual design and the UI design and the development because it's got to be right for everybody on the team. And so it's really all about working together to make those things. And I think it also makes the point somewhere in this that it's never done. There's always going to be some new place where a system is going to be used that you discover some new component that you have to make and so it's that's why everybody continues to get paid because it's there's always some even if it's not a new screen that you're inventing a new system a new part of the system for it might be a 
visual change in the branding. It might be, I don't know, just coming up with any other instance where you have to design something new. There's always going to be something new to design and it's got to be some combination of new pieces and staying consistent to what you have. Like it's rare that you get to redesign the entire thing. And that's always like a giant process. And so I think one of the other very useful things that it talks about at some point in here, I guess in chapter five a little bit, is documenting what you have done. I think it was in chapter four maybe where it was like part of what's important in this process is making it official and like usable and referenceable. I forget the exact words he uses, but he gives a few examples in chapter five of documentation for real design systems that have existed. He references one from Lonely Planet, which is interesting because, like, you don't think, like, you don't think Lonely Planet by itself needs that stuff. But there's so many instances where Lonely Planet has an Apple TV app or a website or an app on your phone, and they then are in the realm of needing a design system. Yeah, yeah. And then they reference to the um, there was the U.S. government basically came out with one a few years ago and there's an image referencing that which is very interesting because it's I don't know the government's a mess but they like really tried interesting is that a is that a metaphor for the government in general (laughs) yeah yeah, for sure but yeah overall just a very interesting way to be thinking about it hey I'm on projects that could last anywhere from six months to a year because I'm working on a system that's very complex and will likely continue growing and will need a lot of flexibility in it. And it's and I think this kind of framework of not necessarily worrying about the end product at the very beginning, but thinking about that end product while you design all the smaller pieces is very important. And certainly a philosophy I will be continuing to ruminate about. I think this again, goes hand in hand with our design tokens episode we did a few weeks back talking about how to keep consistency and how to keep teamwork. Because if you're working on big brands, big systems, you're working with other people, how do we make designers and developers not get constantly frustrated at each other because they have different ways of thinking, you know? Which that's a really good point that makes me want to bring up It feels a lot of times like talking about design systems or talking about like the government or Spotify or Lonely Planet or like these big companies where they're using a system in 10 different contexts. But I think what's beautiful about this book is that it also illustrates, I don't know if it necessarily says it anywhere explicitly, but I found in my own practice of building and designing just a website that this is so easy to like make a mess out of it for yourself like i'm the only Mm. one working on this website but there's you know maybe 10 different pages and four different forms throughout the site and like an edit page and a create page and there's enough places in almost any website even just like a brochure site that you are making that at this point, I think with the complexity of the web, it's a thing where I find myself, if I make a quick button and in my brain, I'm like, well, I'm just going to use it here. I then later, you know, on another page, discover that I need a button and I'm like, oh, shoot. Okay. I need to go back and turn that into a reusable component. And then you realize that on the third page, when you're using a button, it's a different background color. And so then you have to adjust the way that it's programmed and basically what design tokens you put into it. 
and suddenly you're making a design system when you're the only person working on the thing and it's still super important because I can't yeah. I can't tell you how many times before this part in my progress as a designer developer I haven't done that and it just gets messy and like impossible to change anything later on yeah totally that was very fun I learned a lot this week by <laughs> researching things but I hope you learned a lot as well wherever you are listening we got yeah so we got some cool stuff coming out this fall don't snooze on us. Don't sleep on us. We, I, I just want to make people hyped up. Uh, you know, we wrapped up the nerd alert, but there's cool stuff happening. Lots more educational content. We have a lot of nerd alerts. At up. this point, we, we have a whole bunch of ideas for what the nerd alerts are going to be for the next couple months. Mm-hmm. We have a whole bunch of workshops that are lined up that we're getting prepared for. We're going to be helping out with Type Weekend, which is going to be yes. really fun if anybody's paying attention to Type Weekend coming up in just a few weeks. You're going to see our lovely voices, probably not our faces, probably just our voices. And, you know, then more workshops after that and then and and then next year I think there's going to be there's going to be a whole lot to talk about. If you want to see our lovely faces, you have to go to a workshop. <laughs> That's what those are reserved for. (laughs) That's true. That's true. All right. You can't avoid that. Another fun week, Micah. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for chiming in. Your perspective is always helpful when I'm into these like very deep web design topics. Great times. Your research is always impeccable, my friend. Oh, thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining. See you next week.